Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. So for me, the objective of free climbing El Cap in a day was kind of like the epitome of my climbing career. In my head, it's like something that I had built up the skills for since I started climbing when I was 10 years old, if that makes sense. Like it's so complex a goal and it requires so many different skills and so many different styles and so much experience and so much so many logistics that for me it really felt like like the culmination of all of my you know two two plus decades of of climbing my name is emily harrington and i have been climbing for 24 years at this point through her career emily has evolved into one of the best all-around climbers out there she started by dominating the competition circuit. She, uh, she's a five-time U.S. national champion in sport climbing. And of course, she's a 514 sport climber. She's honed her skills to the point where she could free climb El Cap. Uh, she's also summited Everest and skied off the top of Choyoyu, which is the sixth tallest mountain in the world, which is basically one of the most well-rounded climbing skill sets you, you can imagine. I mean, skiing the biggest mountains in the world and winning competitions. Basically, she's a total badass. But out of all of those achievements, arguably the most difficult thing was her single day free climb of El Cap's Golden Gate in November of 2020. Golden Gate is something like a 35 pitch, 513, very steep, very technical, very physical. I chose the Golden Gate because that was my first route that I freed on El Cap. Um, and I just wanted this really like distinct show of progression, if that makes sense. Like I did it over six days in 2015, and then I was like, oh, be really cool to like progress so much as a climber and be able to do it in a day at the time it was something that was like so far at my you know it was at my absolute limit free climbing it over six days so that's kind of the reason i chose golden gate there's still not that many people who have done this therefore there's like no road map to preparing for it training for it for me it was very much this like trial and error of like how do i how do i prepare to 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 free climb 3,000 feet, you know, over the course of 14 hours and then dispatch like 513, 3,000 feet off the ground. When I tell people about free climbing El Cap in a day who don't climb, I explain it like, okay, it's like you have to run an ultra marathon and then at the end you have to do like the 100 meter sprint and perform. That's truly what it feels like like to me. You have to put in all this time and energy and effort just to get up to the hardest pitches. One of my tries, I actually failed on the very, very, very last pitch. Literally, I had 15 feet of hard climbing left and I just couldn't continue. I just couldn't do it because the fatigue was so deep. And I think that that part, that's that mental struggle and that, you know, that amount of energy an effort put forward and to to still, you know, have a very high chance of failing at the end is probably why still not that many people free climb El Cap in a day because it is so emotionally and mentally taxing. 
for me, that was the biggest challenge over the years was sort of reckoning with the idea that I might be in the best shape of my life. I might be so fit. I might have the most perfect day, but I could still fail at the very end and have this like really heartbreaking experience up there. Statistically, I kind of think of it in terms of basketball. There are a lot of high school basketball players in the U.S. About a million girls and boys play in high school. The number that goes on to play in college gets whittled down to 18,000. And of those 18,000, the NCAA calculates that 52 men will go on to play in the NBA and 31 women will go to play in the WNBA. So I think it's pretty analogous to, to what it takes to be able to free climb El Cap over the course of a few days, right? Putting all those pitches together over the course of five or six days. Um, that's like making an NBA or WNBA team, even if, you're, even if you're riding the bench, right? That does feel correct. It's interesting the numbers with uh, millions of girls and boys playing in high school basketball going on to eventually having 50-ish people in the NBA. And with free climbing all cap in the day, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you can be an incredibly gifted rock climber, but just being physically gifted alone is not going to be enough to get you up all cap in a day. Totally, yeah. And I, and I think that being an all-star in the NBA or WNBA, that would be kind of equivalent to being able to free climb El Cap in a single day. An athlete has arrived at that moment through a mandatory combination of natural talent, refinement of skill, extreme work ethic, high athletic IQ, and some level of luck or circumstance. El Cap, free, in a day. Putting those words on your climbing resume puts you in the league of legends. But how did that become the bar? I think there's a very, very, very small handful of achievements across the board in sports in general that would measure up to what Lynn Hill did in climbing. In my opinion, what Lynn did is, you know, maybe the most groundbreaking achievement in rock climbing. Today in Chapter 5, we talk to Lynn Hill, whose influence both athletically, culturally, and professionally on climbing are hard to overstate. We bring you a story about a singular athlete who stepped up to the biggest stage in climbing and redefined what was athletically possible, not just for her generation, but generations to come. We get some help from Emily Harrington and Beth Rodden. And we finally find out Alex's greatest fear. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Hall. You're listening to Climbing Gold. Chapter 5. A Magician Needs a Stage. I started climbing through my older sister, whose boyfriend saw a little note in an outdoor store. They had like some big cement block in a parking lot, and they were teaching belaying and rappelling lessons. So from that point, he bought the gear and started going to places like Joshua Tree, and there's a few other little local areas in Southern California, but mostly he went out to Big Rock and Joshua Tree, and then Talk Eats and Suicide. 
My name is Lynn Hill. I've been climbing for about 45 years now. I went through that whole evolution of being on that sharp end when it was sometimes quite dangerous. Bolted climbs were not that common. Mostly when you would go rock climbing, it was track climbing. And occasionally there would be bolts or in certain areas, bolted slab, like in Big Rock, the first place that I went was actually a bolted slab, but quarter inch bolts, which at the time I didn't know how scary they were, but they aren't very strong. And they were kind of spaced out. And if you're new to climbing, it's scary to be just trusting your friction on these slabs and tumble down a long ways if you fall, right? A teenage Lynn Hill fell in love with climbing. In the mid-1970s, it was pretty rare to see a teenage girl floating up the boulders of J-Tree or Camp 4 and tackling the difficult run-out slabs of the era. But Lynn felt welcomed into the ragtag climbing community of the Stonemaster era that we talked about in Chapter 1. These were the most varied dirtbag days where climbers ate leftovers off the trays of tourists and scraped by in order to extend a climbing season. Lynn would write about those days in her biography as among the best and most carefree of my life. And though my friends were scoundrels, I felt their friendship convincingly. Even in the hyper-masculine Stonemaster culture, it was clear that the slightly younger Lynn was an incredible athlete. She'd been a gymnast, and it translated. There were also times where she could feel the added pressure of being a woman in a sport dominated by men. Mari Gingery, who was my partner, one of the few women that I climbed with back in the day, she was a fellow Stonemaster, and we did the nose together, and we actually led the whole way for the guy who was Dean Fidelman, um, who happened to be afraid of leading, especially that high off the ground. So we dragged him up in 1979, and then the following year, we did the shield. The shield is an aid climbing test piece up the center of one of the wildest parts of El Cab. And we didn't know really anything about aid climbing. You know, we, we knew how to climb, so we knew how to set up belays, but, you know, the equalizing was probably not my forte. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, we, we went up on the shield, and what the guys were saying, you know, even the guys in the rescue side, all, all the guys that were friends with our boyfriends, they were saying, yeah, what do you bet? They, they turn around in two days and they were just making all these bets. And I had no idea they were saying that, but we made it to the top. It wasn't fast, but we did make it. John Long, the legendary Stonemaster and Lynn's one-time boyfriend and longtime friend, would write in the foreword of Lynn's autobiography, noting the endemic machismo of the culture. Lynn shattered the gender barrier so thoroughly that no one could put the pieces back together again. So after the initial shock of it all, the bone-deep chauvinism most of us had unconsciously embraced soon melted away like the fat off a holiday ham. Not all that fat would melt away. That period of time in the early 80s was a transitional moment for climbing. Gear was rapidly improving to support free climbing and uh, with it, the grades began to rise too. At Smith Rock in Oregon, Alan Watts was establishing the first sport climbing crag in the country on the crumbly volcanic tuff there. The infrastructure for supporting climbing athletes though was non-existent. Lynn and Long, who was at that moment her boyfriend, 
they were working odd jobs. They they were in Vegas, they moved to LA, where Long pursued a career in writing TV. And Lynn also became a staple on these athletic TV shows. As the sun rises over Southern Florida, so too comes the dawn of what has become an institution in the world of sport. Weird Hollywood things that would sometimes pop up, like climbing over a hot air balloon in flight. I did that when I was 18. Held, taking some of the best athletes in the world, placing them on an equal basis to see who truly is the champion. They're, they're kind of comical when you watch them now. They, they would feature athletes from different sports competing against one another. The survival of the fittest competition, that actually helped pay my way through college because I, I competed in it four different years. She won the competition four years in a row. When she realized that the prize money was greater for the men's portion of the competition, she successfully organized the female competitors to achieve parity in winnings. Jumping ahead a little bit in your climbing, could you tell us how you got involved in competition climbing? I was living in upstate New York. I just graduated with a degree in biology. I graduated in 1985 from New Paltz, New York after going to college for probably six years, but four different colleges. In 1983, she moved to New Paltz, New York, home to the world famous gunks. My income in the beginning came from first guiding. That was in upstate New York. And I had started a small guiding company, pretty much just me with a little tiny ad in the back of Outside Magazine. She continued to push the standards of free climbing by establishing routes like Yellow Crack Direct and Vandals, the first 513 on the East Coast. The rock is a, a lot different than in California. There were a lot more overhanging features and roofs, so I was getting a little bit more prepared for a more physical style of climbing. I was interested in traveling, but I had no idea about what was going on in Europe until my friend Russ Kloon showed me pictures of climbing over there with Wolfgang Gulick. And he was like the first person that I knew that actually had any interaction with the Europeans. And I was kind of intrigued because I was more of a, an athlete uh, or taking that kind of approach to climbing because it made sense to me as a gymnast. And, you know, of course you're going to work a move and, and figure it out so that when you get to the crux of the climb, you know kind of neurologically what to do, and it makes a lot more sense. Um, at the time, working out the moves while hanging on the rope was, was frowned upon, called hang-dogging. Now it's just called climbing. I wasn't that familiar with sport climbing. I didn't even have a set of quick draws. I had super tape, like big giant slings that I, I wound up into smaller slings, you know, so they weren't even proper quick draws. But I'd never seen limestone. I didn't know what limestone was. And bolted climbs were not that common. In Europe, sport climbing had taken off. It was the rage. That was like where the focus was. On top of that, a thriving competition scene uh, started to develop right in the mid-80s. Hearing the stories, Lynn was excited to check it out. And she liked it so much that she ended up moving to Europe. Sponsorship sort of trickled in. My first European contracts were Petzl and Bial Ropes. Then I got a few sponsorships with um, like Dualfold, Hind. Hind was the first company that I knew of that made tights that were starting to be used by climbers, which at first was not very well received. You were supposed to wear baggy painter's pants and you know, as the sport became more of a gymnastic form, 
people started enjoying wearing all these outlandish colored tights, kind of a, a rebellious thing almost. Then prize money, which actually was pretty good in the beginning. I think there were not that many women that were climbing at the level that, you know, me and, and Catherine Desteville at, that, at the beginning stage. And then there were people like Isabel Patissier and then some people like Robin Urbisfield came on to the scene a little bit afterwards. We were the American team for a while, as a matter of fact, with basically no support. You know, we were just by ourselves over there, you know, inscribing into the competitions and the World Cups and figuring out getting a hotel room, for example, at the World Cup events and, and getting information because we were living there. I generally either won or came in second, you know, occasionally I'd make a mistake, but I pretty much was on the victory stand every time. And I think I calculated at some point that I'd won over 30 international competitions. And I didn't really compete that long. I started in 1986 and I ended in 1992. Through her prize winnings, Lynn was able to put together a living that allowed her to focus on climbing. While Lynn dominated the competition scene, she was also excelling in sport climbing. When Frenchman J.B. Trebeau, one of the leading sport climbers of the day, said no woman could climb 514, Lynn went and dispatched one of Trebeau's most famous routes, Mass Critique, completing it in fewer tries than it took J.B. I could see that there was a, a potential beyond where we were at. And so in that, that time period, they did not have men and women on the same climbs. And I pushed for that because I wanted to see how that would work out. And actually, I think it was pretty close. I could have competed, and I did actually at times, compete on the same routes as the men. And I did pretty good. And it was because I could see what was possible. Even at 5'2", Lynn was standing shoulder to shoulder with the leading climbers of the day. But she also sensed the horizon line of a professional career. Making a living, it just wasn't really possible. After the break, Lynn Hill decides to retire, though retire is definitely in air quotes. Also, Alex plays the flute. Let me put this somewhere. All right, nice to see you. Here, no, I'll put it right over there. Our next guest is uh, ranked number one, number one in the world uh, by the Association of Sports Climbers International. And here we have some videotape of this woman uh, doing what she does. Where is the videotape? Here we go. We don't have it. No videotape. She's that good. She doesn't need videotape in the introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the best rock climber in the world, Lynn Hill. Hi. Nice to see you. Lynn Hill was a generational athlete without the ready-made platform of mainstream sports. She was comfortable in the spotlight, on the televisions of U.S. homes. Here she is on David Letterman in 1989. Her poise is as smooth as her climbing, firing back comebacks even when Letterman dips into a series of sexual jokes that Jimmy Kimmel or Stephen Colbert made today while chatting with a leading female athlete, they would likely get fired. She's the consummate pro. Now, right. if you want to do it like the French do it, you can go and blow it. Yeah. Wait, and then what, make no, a you wish? Get some more chalk. With her competitive career winding down, Lynn needed a venue where she could shine. Not a television show or climbing with some sort of gimmick, 
but a stage where her talent could speak. My motivation to try free climbing the nose in 1993 came from my sentiment that it was kind of like a retirement gesture. I wasn't going to be continuing to compete on the international competition circuit. I didn't see that there was any future in being a professional rock climber because that didn't exist. So I wanted to use all of my strength and skills and background as a trad climber and then my evolution into sport climbing. I wanted to combine all of that to do something that would be kind of, you know, my masterpiece at that time. And that was the nose. What a perfect climb. Climbing doesn't really have big arenas or big, you know, venues in which to showcase the sport. And so something like El Cap and and especially a route like the nose is kind of like going to the Super Bowl or playing in Yankee Stadium, or, or honestly, it's like playing a solo performance in Carnegie Hall or something, you know, it's like this incredible venue in which to perform at the highest level. And even though there isn't technically an audience watching, you know that when you climb on El Cap, the global climbing community will notice, you know, it really is basically showcasing climbing in the biggest possible arena. I mean, it's just so historic, so well known, just so iconic and beautiful. And it's just such a clear, you know, it's a great canvas for it. It's like, what a, what a perfect place for it to be like, check this out. I'm going to do a thing. Did you did you ever like play music as a kid? Like, did you have to do recitals? Uh, yeah, I did technically have to do music as a kid, but I was so bad. <laughs> what did you play? Uh, I played the flute and the piano. Basically, because my family uh, had flutes and pianos and everybody played. <laughs> um. Do you, were you terrified like when you had to go do the recital? Like, did, was there a moment where like little Alex is out and there's like a spotlight and you're playing? Like, do you have a memory of that as a kid? Uh, kind of. I mean, basically no, because I was so bad and I hated it so much that I basically never performed. And then when I had to take music in school, I just faked it the whole time. I basically never even blew through the flute because I just didn't know how to play. <laughs> I just like hoped that no one would notice that no, no sound was coming out. I was, it was so terrible. Would like if you had to think about like the one of the most terrifying things to do, would it be to be like stand in front of like Carnegie Hall or one of these great sort of artistic venues where people gather to watch somebody perform? Uh, how terrifying would that be to you? Yeah, I can think of nothing more horrifying than having to stand on a stage by yourself and perform in front of an audience. I mean, actually, I think singing would be the worst possible thing that I can imagine. Just standing in front of a stage and singing. Terrible. (laughs) So 93, I was 33. Physically, a good age. I had a lot of experience on a lot of different types of climbing, from bouldering, competitions to big walls. Endurance is kind of my thing anyway. It's naturally what I'm good at. So that seemed like a logical goal for me. The nose was also hard as hell. It had rebuffed serious attempts from leading climbers and freeing it would be a major leap forward. And there was a feeling that it was probably impossible. To be the first at something, I think you have to have a kind of confidence and a a vision that's objective and not based on what other people think, which, you know, I think I'm lucky that way that I've always had that sort of view. And I kind of think you do too, Alex, you have that sort of like, sure, I can do that. You look at it and you know you can, and it doesn't matter if other people think that that's amazing or crazy or 
outlandish, you can see that it's possible. And so it seemed completely reasonable to me. So I think the story you tell yourself is really important. And also, I think you have to be willing to fail to the degree that you might not be able to do what you thought you could, but setting the bar high helps you attain more than you probably would have. So I see no problem in setting the, the bar really high and trying really hard. And then you're happy because you've, you've really pushed yourself as far as you can. And sometimes you actually do it and you're able to do what you maybe a lot of people, even yourself thought might not be possible. It's really interesting to hear you talk about downplaying the challenge of something like that, because that is basically the same process that I went through with soloing El Cap, but uh, I've never really thought yeah. of it in exactly that way. I'm like, oh, hearing you describe it, I'm like, that is exactly the same process I went through, but uh, but somehow you can just state it more eloquently. I'm like, oh, interesting. That's that's 25 years well, of perspective, I guess. Well, I figured you could relate. Yeah, yeah no, no, totally. I, I figured that would be right on with what you had to do, because it would be overwhelming to think about in a different way. Alex, would you describe the nose for us? It's just this obvious challenge where it's the most striking line of the most striking wall in the world. It's just such a clear goal. The difficulty in free climbing the nose basically comes down to two very hard pitches, the great roof and the changing corners. And the rest of the route is pretty difficult at 512 and 511. Uh, you know, it's still difficult rock climbing, but it's nothing compared to the difficulty of the two crux pitches. The Great Roof is one of the more distinguishable features on El Cap. I mean, particularly once you know the nose a little bit, but really when you look up at the wall, you can kind of always see the Great Roof. The most difficult section of the pitch are, are basically the final 20 feet, uh, this horizontal traverse to the, to the anchor at the end. That part is very thin, very technical, and, and just difficult. It, it really hurts your fingers, honestly. It's kind of heinous. Here's Emily Harrington again. Like, it's so hard in such an, an interesting and weird way, is what people say, especially the changing corners. Like, that thing has shut so many of the world's best rock climbers down. What I think makes the changing corners such an interesting pitch is that it's incredibly difficult for, for everybody, but people of different sizes climb it in different ways with different techniques, and it's still equally desperate for everybody. Because when Lynn did it, she did this really interesting Houdini maneuver where she sort of got inside the corner and, and lie back. I, I don't really know what she did because it was magic, which is why it's called Houdini. Tommy Caldwell, who did the second ascent, did sort of a variation of that technique. But nowadays, a lot of people lie back the outside and, and knee bar it uh, with knee pads. It's kind of like new school sport climbing style. And it seems like each person who climbs the changing corners does so in a completely unique way that suits their own size and strength and, and technique. It, I mean, there's basically just no set way to climb the changing corners. Like, it, it always requires a little bit of magic. In 1993, over the course of several days on the wall, Lynn successfully put together the complex sequence of moves to unlock the changing corners pitch. Her friend, Brooke Sandall, later. When he saw me doing those moves, he said, you've got to be Houdini to do that stuff. And, and so it became known as the Houdini move because it looked like you had to be a contortionist to do the, the sort of double armbar move. The climbing world was in awe. Boreal, the climbing shoe company who sponsored Lynn, put out an ad reading, It Goes, Boys. Lynn rated the route 13 BC. Today, it's consensus 514 AB. Despite regular attempts by leading climbers, 
it would take 12 years before Beth Rodden and Tommy Caldwell would repeat the nose. To the climbing community, Lynn had completed her masterpiece. Apparently, Lynn didn't get the memo. In 1994, she came back and did the whole thing in a single day. The ultramarathon to the 100-meter dash. You know, yeah, what Alex did on El Cap is incredible and and totally, totally jaw-dropping. But I just can't fathom the shock of of what her peers went through when she did that in the early 90s. Like, I just can't even describe how far ahead of her time she was, especially now after having done it, after having applied all of my skills over the years and all the modern training and all the access to gyms and the ability to just put pour every ounce of my energy into this objective. Like, I think there's a very, very, very small handful of achievements across the board in sports in general that would measure up to what Lynn Hill did in climbing. Here's Beth Rodden. I mean, I think it's hard to describe, and I think it was hard for the climbing community to even grasp how impressive and like ahead of her time she was, right? Like at the time when she did it, you know, everybody was thought, oh man, this is amazing. Lynn just freed the nose for the first time ahead of any other male counterpart that could have done it. But I think what is most impressive is how long it took to get repeated right? And it wasn't for lack of trying. It wasn't like it was this obscure route that nobody knew about and then nobody went to try. It was like every single top climber, mostly male, tried to come and repeat it and just like walked away with their tail between their legs. And it bruised some egos. After the break, Lynn reflects on her greatest achievement. As a young girl, like coming into climbing, growing up in Boulder, Colorado, and like learning about Lynn pretty much right when I began climbing and realizing, like not really understanding or comprehending the achievement, but just sort of knowing that that a woman had pioneered like one of the greatest achievements in rock climbing was in my head, even as a 10 year old, I was like, wow, that is badass. Like climbing is a space for women. Climbing is a space where women can achieve great things. I started climbing the year that she freed the nose and then the next year she freed it in a day. And so everywhere I went, you know, like every gym I went into had that iconic poster of like her on the last pitch. And it was like, it goes boys, you know, that type of thing. So that is what was etched in my mind. You know, I wasn't like a full grown adult, but I was a teenager. And so I had no idea what the nose of El Capitan meant, right? Like I was like, oh, I like I didn't even understand that. But because it was so celebrated and it was this huge thing in the climbing community that I was just like diving into, it became this thing that was like paramount for climbing, you know? Like I didn't even actually understand what it was, but I understand that it I understood that it was this massive thing that had been done and she had done it. 
Those posters, they adorned the walls of so many climbing gyms as they ushered in new climbers to the sport during the 1990s. It was like an important history lesson to the newly initiated. You'd walk in, you'd see a poster, and you'd ask who Lynn Hill was, and then you'd learn about the nose. Or, or when you asked about climbing El Cap, you invariably heard about Lynn. But just behind it was this weird and troubling footnote that some people would often share. A vestige of all those bruised male egos. Someone would say, well, you know, it's because their fingers fit in the cracks. They would add this carefully to not say what they were really thinking. That there must be some other explanation for why Lynn stood atop the climbing world in the 1990s other than talent, hard work, and sheer determination. It's funny to try to justify Lynn's ascent by saying that she has small fingers because sort of the simpler explanation is that she was the best competition climber in the world at that point, was the first woman to climb 514. She's basically one of the best climbers in the world, full stop, and had an incredible background climbing technical granite. I mean, she'd grown up climbing routes like the nose. And so it's not that surprising that she was able to apply this, you know, cutting edge, you know, world-class sport climbing ability to a big technical granite wall. I mean, that, you know, it was a perfect combination of all of her skills. And yet, you know, people still chose to sort of justify it away as like, oh, you know, she has small fingers. Did the comments about your finger size bother you at all? I definitely think the small fingers comment was meant to kind of offset why it was a woman that did it first and kind of an excuse or something. And yes, it was discounting the fact that other parts of the route were maybe harder if you were small. But the whole point of climbing in general is to adapt yourself to the rock in the most clever way that you can using, you know, whatever you were given, your body size, finger size, none of that is as important as your mind and your solutions and your ability to persevere. So I think for me, that's always been obvious that, you know, you need all of those skills and it's not just the finger size or anything like that, especially on a 3,000 foot wall. It doesn't really come down to just that one element. So it is something that I used to kind of smile when people would say that. It would tell me a lot about either they don't know enough about climbing to understand that that's only one element or that they were using that kind of in their own mind to soften the fact that it was a woman that did it first. Lynn's career spans decades, all the way from the dirtbags of the 1970s to the rise of the professional climbers, of which she was one of the first. She was there for the beginning of the marketing content machines where companies would send climbers around the globe to document first ascents and photos, words, and films. Today, Lynn is still climbing hard, but a step back from the professional side of it. I see it much different today with social media being kind of the driving force of people's careers. Seems like, and I'm no expert in this, but it seems like your numbers in terms of who's following you seem to you know, be the proof of your value. So um, that's an important game to play. But kind of like with competitions, when things got to that point, it didn't feel like that's the way I wanted to structure my life. You either have to be entertaining and or, you know, at the leading edge of your sport. 
you know, to feel authorized to contribute in that way. Being in my position, I pretty much have backed away from sponsorship. I don't take money from companies because I don't feel that I provide that service. Not that I don't feel that I provide a service, but I feel like for me to feel pure in my motivation as a climber, I have to feel free. For me to feel pure in my way of making a living, I also have to feel free and untethered by this commercial drive to post something that day or however many times per week you're supposed to do it. And I know it works. It's, I know it's a proven thing and I don't criticize people who do it. It's just that I don't feel that that's the way that I want to be and the way I want to contribute. Lynn, you've talked about the nose as your masterpiece. Um, and I'm curious with time, do you think that the, the, your true masterpiece is your legacy, especially as a, as a woman who went on to be um, the best in their field for a time? In a, in a male-dominant field, too. Um, do you think in a way that, that that's a bigger deal than, than free climbing the nose in a day? Well, I, I identify with what you're saying in the aspect of my contribution with regard to the nose or my career in general. If you think about all the speaking I've done and in interviews, it's really more about the topic of equality. I don't like to say, you know, the women's topic, but more just about equality because I don't think that at a certain point in time, even you know, early on in the competition days, I remember thinking about what we're capable of and realizing that it's really just, again, about the story you tell yourself. Like, why would the guys look at me and say, women are not going to be able to climb 514? And when people said those things, it really made me think hard about, well, what is possible? And why is it that, you know, progress is this slow thing where we establish a grade and then you know a certain number of people do that grade before we move on to the next why can't we just see very clearly that of course 513 is going to be a warm up even though it seemed really hard for me i could see that there was a, a potential beyond where we were at i didn't need the verification of all these other people doing it to know that it was possible so i guess the point is your vision of what you think is possible. And that can go beyond our times. And I think I did that to some degree on the nose. I really knew that this was important and I knew that it would speak volumes on that topic. If a woman could do this historic route first before the men, wow, that would make people really think. And so that became more of a motivation to do it. It gave it more meaning Therefore, it gave me more power to reach in and do my absolute best. So it was really proving that point that we can go forward and, and do something that maybe other people don't realize is possible. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. For photos to go with the story, you can follow us along at Climbing Gold over on Instagram. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by Elizabeth Nakano and me, Fitz Cajal. Music by Amy Stolzenbach, Brennan O'Connell, and Cordelia Zars, who also provided additional editing. 
Our executive producers for Duct Tape and Beer are Becca Cajal and Lisey Hendricks, and for RXR Sports, Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy. Thank you for listening.